you can actually take on an investor or sell your company and not be a sellout. It's your job as the CEO to figure out what you care about and who you care about and what you want for them and to get that. Like the entrepreneurs we are, at some point we just said, well, perhaps we'll stop complaining about it and see if we can go fix it. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Sonny Vanderbeck. Sonny is the managing partner of Satori Capital. Satori is an investment firm founded on the principles of conscious capitalism. They focus on businesses that operate with a long-term perspective, commit to their mission, and create value for stakeholders, not just shareholders. Previously, Sonny was the CEO of Data Return, now part of Verizon, and he served in the U.S. Army. Welcome, Sonny. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So I want to hear about the Sonny Vanderbeck early days. What uh, were your motivations to join the Army, and how did that uh, have an impact on your early career? So I started college at 16, and I found that I was a bit bored. Um, I didn't really enjoy what I found there as, as an undergrad. And so I decided to go do something completely different, um, maybe to find the hardest thing I could think of. Um, and for me, that was to go be an army ranger. And one of the things I learned from that time that, that served me well was to just keep going. Lots of hard days, lots of unreasonable expectations. And, and over and over again, the, the skill that proved useful number one was to just keep going. Sometimes you don't know if you can make it to the end. And so you just pick, pick your foot up and take one more step. And as it turns out, a million steps later, you'll find your, yourself there. Um, I think the, the other thing that came away from that time um, was very much about leadership in crisis or under stress. And so the entire environment was, you know, because of constant stress, constant crisis, um, and not just can you get yourself together um, and accomplish the mission, but can you get other people that are in the same state together to accomplish the mission? And so, so interestingly, while many of us think about the military and imagine it as this um, very rigid, insensitive um, machine, my actual experience on the ground in special operations was deeply understanding the humans around you. Um, and their wants and motivations and needs and desires um, and surrounding yourself by people or with people who look for extraordinary outcomes and are willing to just keep going um, can get you a, a different result. So, so those are my two big takeaways from that time. Thank you. And you, you also founded the company Data Returns um, and, were, and took it public. Um, you were actually one of the youngest CEOs to ever lead a NASDAQ company. Um, just maybe just give us your quick background on data returns and, and what, was, what that was like in your 
very precocious year. So the the time at Data Return came out of my time at Microsoft. Um, the other co-founders and I were at Microsoft in the in the mid '90s, and, and we had a crazy idea that um, someday people were going to use the internet for business and do things like buy things on their computer. Um, it, it was a little nutty at the time, admittedly, um, but we couldn't help it. Um, the the founding of that business was simply we had no other choice because it was all we could think about. And so we started this business that was focused on infrastructure for companies that were trying to do that and and ended up growing 40% every quarter for three and a half years. Um, the practical realities of that were um, we doubled our headcount every 120 days for three and a half years. And so, you know, constant change, as you might imagine, in, in that environment um, and, and working in an industry where really no one had anything figured out anyway. Um, and so I think I enjoyed that experience quite a bit um, and, and that kind of, you know, dynamism and growth um, and was comfortable with, you know, going first um, in an environment like that. I can't say I enjoyed the, the public company CEO job quite as much. Um, I found that I spent too much time with the investor stakeholder and not enough time with the employees and customers and so forth. That's just one of the realities of, of that job, uh, but rewarding nonetheless. Was that company based in Dallas or was it someplace else? It was based in, we were in Las Colinas, Texas. And I know I'm fast forwarding a bit, but we have a lot to talk about today. Um, so your current role in your current business uh, incorporates a very strong social mission into um, your thinking around investing and the concept of conscious capitalism. Can you um, tell us what Satori does, what the ethos of the company is, and perhaps how some of your earlier experiences influenced your thinking around social impact? Randy Eisenman, the other co-founder, and I, what we call business dated for probably three or four years. He was the CEO of another company um, and a partner at, at an investment firm. And, and we just spent more and more time together. We sort of realized we have no idea what may come of it, uh, but we're clearly aligned on lots of things. And so in this time we spent together, uh, we got clear on a few things. And, and one of the things that came out of that was that the way the investment business worked. And again, remember, this is circa, you know, 06, 07, 08, kind of in that time frame. Um, the way the business or the investment business worked didn't actually fit with the needs of companies. Um, that it tended to be short horizon and understand only what fit in Excel. And so having been CEOs ourselves, we had experienced what it was like to work with um, the capital markets and, and to see how much opportunity was lost and how much value was destroyed by this very short-term perspective. Um, and so like the entrepreneurs we are, at some point we just said, well, perhaps we'll stop complaining about it and see if we can go fix it. And so our way to go fix it was to start Satori Capital um, in 2008 with three key ideas. Um, one, that people who've, who've been there, who've been in the chair, have made payroll, have, have done the hard things, be it founders, CEOs, COOs, um, whether it was in directly in an operating company or in an investment business, those people have an experience base to draw from that will help them make different decisions and be better advisors in the boardroom. So that was item one. Second, the idea of fixing this time horizon problem. Um, when you invest and you have a fixed time horizon of five years, what that really means 
is that every day that passes your horizon is shorter. So you may have a five-year horizon on day one, but you get halfway through the investment and the traditional mindset would be to start thinking about, well, what banker can I hire and who am I going to sell it to? When you start thinking about stuff like that, you stop thinking about how can I develop my employees? What long-term moves can I make? How can I build a deeper relationship with this customer that will pay off over time, et cetera? And so we wanted to really break down that problem of time horizon and see if we could fix that. And then the last piece is conscious capitalism. And the, the essence of the idea behind conscious capitalism is this. Profit's not a dirty word. Um, profit's actually a good thing. But profit doesn't result from what you can extract from a system. It's not about what you can get away with. Profit actually, over the long term, is about measuring the value you create for your stakeholders. So to put it into plainer English, if I have happy customers and happy employees and the community likes to see me there and I'm suppliers like to work with me. I don't see companies that have extraordinary relationships with their stakeholders and disappointed investors. Those things tend to go along together. Um, but it's about understanding that all of these things work together, not that you know job number one is get the result for the investor and no one else matters. We think that there's some flaws in that. Um, and ultimately, we think investors get better outcomes if you're able to prioritize these other stakeholders. And so again, it's, it's a measure, profit measures what value I've created, not what value I can take. And so those are the three key ideas behind the launching of Satori. Now we have two businesses, one that invests in private companies that are typically 25 million to 100, 150 million in revenue, and one that invests in other investment funds um, re regardless of their life cycle, and and in many cases helps those investment funds grow and scale. Are you organized as a permanent capital fund then, or do you just have a longer time horizon? Um, you know, we I don't know what you would call it because it's not an evergreen fund. Um, we do distribute capital to investors when we have um, distributions from the underlying companies or harvest events or what have you. You know, as entrepreneurs, we kind of started with a clean sheet of paper and just figured out what structure solves all of these problems. But but in effect, to the specific portion of your question, um, our time horizon is for the funds are one year after the disposition of the last investment. So you'll hear me say 99 years because it's probably easier to um, wrap your head around than indefinite, um, but it is in fact indefinite. And our belief is that Let's stop talking about when we're going to go. Like people ask me, hey, what's your exit plan? I go, how about this? Our companies are going to be best places to work. They're going to be great at executing. They're going to get great outcomes for their customers. They're going to be dynamic competitors, and they're going to be profitable. That's my exit plan. Because if that's the company that we're invested in, the rest of it works out. I've got all the options available to me. I don't have to worry about um, who I'm going to flip it to, I have to worry about how to make it great. And and that's served us well so far. So we do have an indefinite time horizon. Well, that happens to be my personal philosophy as well. And all through my startups, when people ask me what my exit strategy is, I just say, I don't have an exit strategy. I don't believe in them. I just think building a really great company is the right thing to do. And that often leads to good things. That has it has turned out that way for us so far. Absolutely. So we're recording this during the COVID pandemic, and we've obviously seen a 
obviously seen a huge dislocation in the market. Um, and that I also, you know, have been studying how environmental, social, and governance investing is performing. And it, it, the data is pointing to that it is performing better than a more traditional investment. Sunny, I'd love to get your perspective on that. Are you seeing the same? You know, I would say um, my, my starting place is it is early to tell, but I've seen flavors of this movie before. Maybe this is the sequel, but I've seen seen versions of this before. And I think here's how it plays out. Um, back to our earlier point about the origin of profit. If my starting place is to be a best place to work and to have employees love to be part of the team. Another way to look at that is there's a lot of trust in that relationship. Um, and by the way, this conversation follows on across all of the stakeholders. So if I've got a lot of trust in a relationship and, and have always tried to do the right thing by employees, then when things shift and you have to go to employees and say, look, we've got to make some changes and here's what and why, like you're going to get the benefit of the doubt and people are going to be willing to pitch in. What I see happening now is, well, let me give you an example from the ground. Um, one of our companies has a, has a project that they just have to stop work on this project right now. It's, it's not a good financial choice for them because, um, you know, look, rule number one in, in these types of situations is you've got to make it to the other side. Um, and so while they don't want to turn this project off, they have to turn it off. And so they went to this um, team member who's actually a contractor and said, look, this is what we're wrestling with. This is what we're trying to get done. Here are issues. Well, that team member said, how about this? How about I'll just keep working on it and you can pay me later after all this is over. Like, don't even pay me right now. I care about the company. I care about the project. You guys have been good partners. I'm just going to keep working on it. What? In one hand, you go, well, unbelievable. Like, no one does that. That's crazy. And I would tell you, no, very believable. People do that when there's lots of trust and mutualism and they're watching out for each other. And so I think the companies that stuck their customers with the letter of the law and jammed them with a contract two years ago, when they need some help from that customer today, everybody remembers. Everybody remembers. Have you been a good partner? Have you been a good citizen? Um, and so when we get in environments like this or when you start to see what kind of partner have you been to your stakeholders? And so to answer your question, yes, I think they're absolutely going to perform better. Um, and I think they're going to perform better because they're more stable, they're more resilient uh, because of these deep relationships and trust they have in, in their entire ecosystems. Yeah, you know, my dad, he's in his late 70s. He still runs a furniture store. And I grew up working at his furniture store and you know, through the different recessions, I can't even remember how many there were, um, you know, at times when it would get hard to pay the bills, you know, those vendors would keep shipping him even when he was slow on his payments because he had always been a fair customer. And so that works all kinds of different ways. If you've just been good to your partners, whether it's a vendor over the years and you've been fair, when things get tough, they're usually there for you. So um, there's a lot of business still gets done that way. And I think it's it's uh, really wrapped up in this conscious capitalism philosophy, but um, it's awesome to see in times like this. 
as an advisor to many companies, Sunny, have you, are there any common challenges that you've seen amongst mission-driven businesses that have emerged as perhaps trends? You know, I would say in, in an environment like this, um, the common challenge is always the hard choice, right? If you, if you really only care about um, money and short-term stuff, then many of these decisions are easy. Um, but when you actually do care, every one of these decisions is hard. Um, you know, I saw a video of a, a CEO of a large company recently talking about um, the steps they were taking that they had really no choice to take. They were virtually zero revenue. Um, and it was heartwarming to see. It was very clear that CEO actually cared. This was not a financial transaction to him. It was a human reality to him. And so I think it's harder because you care. If you didn't care, all these things would be easy. And so that makes decisions more, um, maybe the objective part of the decision is not more difficult, but the, the experience and the pain of making a decision um, may be harder. And I would say on the the other front, um, not so much specific to right now, but you know, over a longer period of time, there would be two challenges that that I would put forth um, to watch carefully. I have seen situations where the mission takes priority over all stakeholders, um, and my caution is don't don't do that. Um, the mission itself is a stakeholder, but be careful with um, burning your team out for the mission. Be careful with mission over an investor stakeholder, right? It, it, each of your stakeholders needs to get value, however they describe it, um, from the relationship. And so um, all mission, no business, um, it's hard to get investors excited about that. Um, and so just being mindful about how does the business support the mission and how does the mission support the business um, in a reinforcing structure versus um mission in spite of the business. It, it seems like a subtlety, but it, but it matters a lot. I would love to turn to your um, most recently published book called Selling Without Selling Out. It's an excellent title, and we'd love to hear more about um, what the core message is. Great. So the, the core message about the book, Selling Without Selling Out, is this. Um, you can actually take on an investor or sell your company and not be a sellout. It, it particularly in, in family businesses or ones that have been around for a long time or mission-driven businesses, you can get a little stuck on, well, I'll, I'll never sell it. And you know, the, look, the truth of it is, yeah, someday somebody else is going to own this business where we are not yet immortal and we may never be. Um, and so that means it will change hands at some point. And so the challenge is, how do we do this in a way that's consistent with our values? How do we find the next stage of the business or the right investor and, and be happy about the result? It, it turns out that price is not the only thing that matters. And, and the problem is most of the advisors that are in the mix, uh, their job is to get the transaction done. Their job is not to care about what happens the next day. And so everybody thinks that the, the big day is closing day. Um, and having been on the right side of this and the wrong side of this, um, the big day is not closing day. The big day is the day after when you realize what you've done. 
And either you go, wow, how awesome is this? All of my stakeholders were um, treated as well as I could through this and I got what I wanted for them and so on and so forth. Or nobody told me to ask about X, Y, Z. Nobody told me to think about what happens to this plant in Oklahoma Um, or silly stuff like the dress code. Um, Corporate will show up. And they're here to help. And I've seen it happen to a friend of mine where um, they decided that, you know, we would need this little outpost in Austin, Texas. Um, Y'all need to start wearing coats and slacks and ties. Um, That's a long stretch from jeans and a T-shirt. And it seems like a little thing, but those tend to be core to cultures. And so the point really, price is not the only thing that matters. It's your job as the CEO to figure out what you care about and who you care about and what you want for them and to get that. No one else is going to help you do that. It's not their job. It's your job. And so the the idea behind the book was, look, I didn't get this right every time. I got it wrong um, and realized most of us don't do enough of these in our life to say, oh, well, I learned the lesson the hard way last time. And so I wanted to write the book that I wish I had read the first time I sold my company. Well, I think the hardest one is the first one in terms of selling, just because you've, you know, like most entrepreneurs may not have a huge personal balance sheet. And you, if you're selling a company, there not usually are like five buyers lined up ready to roll. Sometimes there are, but it's very often one buyer and you don't always get to choose who that is. What do you say to a first-time entrepreneur, seller, who, who really wants to see that money in the bank account, wants to feel good about being able to afford their kids' college education and you know, pay off their house or whatever it may be and have a little retirement, but that buyer, they're just not quite sure is the right fit? I would say... First, like, go to my website. I, I've got a bunch of worksheets on my website that will actually help you think through that problem. Um, but I'll give you a thought experiment. Um, this has been useful for me. And, and this has told me a lot about not what, what do I think, but what all these other CEOs think. Um, and it's a pretty consistent answer to the question. If you knew your acquirer was going to fire 100% of your employees and shut the company down the day after, would you still do the deal? Or... How much more does your acquirer have to pay if you know they're going to do that? And most of the CEOs I talk to, there's not actually a number there. The answer is no, go away. And so what that establishes is for many of us, probably most of us, we actually do care about things other than money. Um, And the thing is, though, if you don't ask the questions, you're just kind of on the ostrich plan and you go... I feel kind of weird about this acquirer. I don't really like them, but everything's going to be okay. And then a month later, your employees are calling you and your customers are calling you. And this has been a total mess. What did you do to me? Blah, blah, blah. And so great. You've got money for your kid's college. And the thing you spent your life on um, is in shambles. And so if you can figure out what it is that you want for each of these stakeholders, then you'll know if you have it. And, and so this can bring things, can bring a lot of clarity to these things. And sometimes the general unease has nothing to do with the facts. It's just general unease. You go, oh, I don't really like this acquirer. Well, why? Well, because they're, they're bad people. Well, what does that mean? 
Um, and I've seen that actually play out before where um, the general consensus about who the best acquirer was with a little more diligence was actually opposite. That the one that appeared on its face to be the bad acquirer was actually a much better acquirer, but it took some work. And so a big part of the book is about like, what's the actual process to figure out what you want and, and who are these buyers and how do they fit with what you want? So you can know. And look, I don't profess to say you're going to get everything every time. It's complex. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, but when you do have to make a trade-off between A and B, you've already thought through what your priorities are. And if your advisors are trying to push you in one direction or another, or your ego is trying to push you in one direction or another, you've actually taken the time to figure out what you're going to care about long-term. Thanks. That's helpful. Yeah, I agree. It's very helpful. And I, I see in our portfolio, it may not be selling their companies, but um, when companies are raising follow-on rounds, Series A, Series A1, Series B, they are concerned about the type of profile of investor that they take on as well um, for some of the same points that you pointed to, Sunny. So we'd love to learn a little bit more about you and your personal life. Um, if you could walk us through your morning routine and help us uh, learn some of the tricks for how you get ready for the day. Um, it's something we love to ask our guests and uh, hope, hope inspires the people that are listening. And if there are any twists that relate to being in isolation, we'd love to hear about that too. Sure. Um, so I think my first starting point would be all these people that are getting up at four o'clock in the morning have lost their mind. There's no way. <laughs> like, I agree. So, and, and the real point there is, like, this is not a one-size-fits-all. Understanding your own natural rhythms and how your body works is your guidance number one. It's, it's my best argument for what food to eat as well. Your body will actually tell you what food to eat if you watch closely. And so, so in my case, uh, I've learned a couple of things. I'm better at 9 p.m. than I am at 9 a.m. That's just my natural pace. Um, you know, we got up at, at five or six o'clock a lot in the military. Um, but quite often we didn't start the day until dark, um, and would sleep. Our day was when it was dark and our night was when it was light. And so we were constantly having sleep schedules moved around and all of that. Um, so I, I tend to stay up late for, for most, um, of the last 20 or 25 years, I'm in bed at two or two thirty, and I get up around eight or eight 30, or at least that's what I tell myself. And then I have a bunch of other morning stuff to do some breakfast at seven 30 where somebody else has um, been up for hours and is ready to go. And I'm still nursing coffee. Um, so my, my first advice is, is just understand your, your body's actual rhythms and, and pay attention to those. Uh, for me, I need a little time to wind up into the day. And so that, that quiet time in the morning, and I'm a big coffee fan. Um, it's probably my big vice um, is is coffee. Um, so an Americano in the morning, quiet and still, sometimes reading, um, sometimes just looking about at what's going on in the world, sometimes catching up. It depends on on what's on my mind that day. But I really try to spend that first hour um, mostly still and thoughtful. 
I think is the way I would describe it and not rushing. And I think that that would be the, the other piece that I've learned. If I have a rushy morning, I don't have a good day. Um, and then the last piece, and again, for me is don't work out in the morning. I have one workout I do every morning because I have no other way to realistically fit it in my schedule. And I notice I'm better on the days where I work out in the evening versus the morning. Uh, So that's amazing. That's rare. Yeah, it is. Um, But that's what my body tells me. And I, I've learned to listen. Um, And I can compare and contrast on the the two work as I do in the evening. Um, No matter how tired I am or what I feel like when I get done with those workouts, I feel better. And the workout I do in the morning, um, I'm, I'm slow for a good bit of the day. I have to work at my cognitive capacities lower. Um, I'm not as in tune with anything. And so I've just learned, again, to, to pay attention to what works for me. In fact, we have a, a colleague in the office. Um, he does one of his workouts every week in the middle of the day because that fits his body um, and his natural rhythms and patterns best. So, yeah, so to recap, um, don't be rushy in the morning is kind of rule number one. Um, and then just pay attention to my body. And, you know, as an example, I, I don't eat for a few hours after I get up, not because I'm trying intermittent fasting. I just learned to pay attention. That's about when I get hungry. So that's, that's when I eat. Now, have you tried this mushroom coffee that everyone's talking about? You know, I have not. Um, there are just a few foods that don't do anything for me and I don't want to have anything to do with. Um, and one is blue cheese, no matter how good the blue cheese is. Um, and the other one is mushrooms. It's, it's a bummer, Mm -hmm. but mushrooms are not for me. Well, there you go, Eva. There's another one. Ed is poking fun at me. Yes. But I think it's incredible that you know yourself and your body. And I would assume that you're optimizing for performance. Is that right? Or are you optimizing for feeling good? What, what are you trying to solve for and changing some of your habits around? Um, no, I think those things are all intertwined, right? When I feel good, I tend to perform better. Um, and so, and part of it is I'm just optimizing for, um, the intersection of like, am I enjoying this experience? Um, cause if I'm enjoying it, I'll, I'll probably be a better human to people around me. Um, right. I'll be more thoughtful. I'll be more insightful. I'll be more likely to pause when I'm about to say something that um, is best served with my inside voice. Uh, and so probably optimizing for the intersection of all of those things. And, I'll, you know, I'll give one other little nugget. Um, while I've not been a big, um, you know, personal data fan of, you know, track every single thing, um, I have found one thing to have a great correlation with results. Um, and that's uh, heart rate variability more so than how I feel. That's one where the data is actually telling me something different than how I feel. So to put a fine point on it, I don't feel very good. I don't really want to work out, but my heart rate variability score is high. When I go and work out, I get great performance. And if I feel great and that score is low, I'll get poor performance. Um, and so that is one place where I've realized my, my signals from my body are disconnected from reality and the heart rate variability, um, tells me a lot more about, about reality. Do you use a whoop strap? I use an aura ring. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I have one of those as well. You do? Um, I do. 
I do. Yeah. <laughs> Something else to poke fun of. No, so fun of. no I've, um, I've used kidding. a whoop strap a lot, but that's, that's more of a little bit bigger. It goes on your wrist. Same thing. Yeah. Heart rate variability. Yeah. I think it's good to have information about who we are, especially as humans and our human functioning. Um, perhaps just to wrap up, I would like to turn back to conscious capitalism. Um, Sonny, you've been a, an instrumental stakeholder in the movement of conscious capitalism and would love to hear your views on the future of conscious capitalism, particularly in a post-COVID-19 world. Well, I won't suggest that I'm able to predict the future. But what I will suggest is I have noticed a growing number of business leaders remembering how to be humans. And I think that is at the essence of conscious capitalism. If, if we look at all these people around us, regardless of what kind of stakeholder they are, um, as another human with hopes and dreams and vision and a purpose of their own and can look at ourselves and say, how can we help them accomplish their mission? How can I move them forward? All these other pieces, these details about fund life and stakeholders and all of those things tend to work themselves out. And so I'm very appreciative of more and more CEOs and leaders I see um, being real and being human in the way that are relating to this and in not, I had a friend recently um, that has nursing homes. That's his business. Can you imagine right now what it's like to have an extraordinarily vulnerable population and it's your watch to keep them safe. Um, and what he did was not to quick hire a PR firm and get marketing involved and so on and so forth. What he did instead was to get on video and be real and be human about what's working, what's not working, his concerns, um, his hopes, et cetera. And so maybe, just maybe, one of the good things that comes out of all of this is that we remember that when we go to work, we are still the same person that we are when we're at home with our family. And when we go to work, we remember what it's like to be human and not be corporate. And out of that, all of these other decisions come where we better understand our individual role as leaders in the fabric of capitalism. Yeah, that's really well put. And I think tremendous wisdom for our listeners. Um, with that, I would love to thank you. And I, if you could tell us where we could learn more about your book, that would also be great in closing. Happy to. Um, so a link to the book and an assessment and a number of worksheets I built to help people work through this are all on my personal website at sunnyvanderbeck.com. And the book is available in Kindle, audio, and hard copy on Amazon as well. Incredible. We'll link to it in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. All the best. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sonny. It's great having you today. Appreciate it. 
Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.